Welcome to the United Church Podcast. We're a new church here in Seattle committed to an ethic of love and walking in the ways of Jesus. We're striving to be a people united, united with Jesus, each other, ourselves, and the world around us. We hope you're encouraged and challenged by this week's homily. May the peace of Christ be with you. I have doubts. A lot of them, actually. They come and go. Some linger for a while and eat away at my psyche, gnawing on my mind, tearing at my heart, using my soul as a punching bag. But other doubts, annoying doubts, they, they seem to swirl around me like gnats. I know I'm not really supposed to admit this, so I've been told a hundred times or so. Pastors are some special breed of super Jesus-y people. We inhabit some sort of special space of enlightenment and, and even perfection, placed upon a pedestal, unable to be truly human. I've never really liked that position. I've always fought it, mainly because I think it's dangerous and unbiblical, and it's, it's gotten me in trouble a lot throughout my life. Messages like this popping up into my inbox a timer. 20. And while these messages are funny, at times they hurt. At times they spin new doubts, which I suppose just makes me feel even more of a false pastor. I have doubts, and I don't have any problem admitting that. You you see, my doubts always take on the form of questions. How about you? Like, does God really exist? Or do I just believe in a silly little fairy tale? I mean, perhaps God is just some sort of social or psychological construct that we've imagined to mitigate the worst of ourselves. Or maybe karma. Maybe karma is the force that really rules reality. That what goes around comes around and you always get what you deserve. Which I've always found a strange way of understanding the world. That if this planet is the consequence of some sort of random chance, that we would believe in this arbitrary law that what goes around comes around. Because when I look around, I don't really see this law meted out all that consistently. There are far too many people who have lived this life consequence-free, and too many more undeserved who have been crushed. And at the same time, There are far too many Christians who believe in this strange law of karmic justice as well. What goes around, comes around. You always get what you deserve. Which would mean that the people of New Orleans, in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, or the victims of Boulder or Atlanta, that they somehow deserved this. That this is either some sort of divine retribution or karmic justice. Is that our reality? Is that how the world works? That our world is ruled by some random sequence of cause and effect? Because that seems too unbelievable. And if there is a God, then who is he really? Is he good, loving, merciful, peaceful? Or is he, in the words of C.S. Lewis, some sort of cosmic sadist intent on exacting some sort of divine retribution and judgment like the gods of Greek mythology? Because if that's all he is, why would I ever want to follow that? Why would I ever give my life over to some thing like that? 
let alone devote my life to telling other people about that, helping other people square that belief. I'd be the greatest salesman in the world if that were the case. But what about Jesus? Is he the best of what God has to offer? Was he a real person, a historical person, or just a literary construct like Tiny Tim? Was he really God's son and which God? The cosmic sadist God, the karmic God, or something other? And did he really rise from the dead? I I mean, no one has ever really risen from the dead before, have they? Life isn't some sort of video game where you can enter a cheat code for unlimited lives. And don't even get me started on all the doubts I've had about the Bible. Let's just deconstruct everything, shall we? Is it full of tall tales, good moral stories like you'd find in Aesop's fables? Like, like the story of Noah in Genesis 6 and the worldwide flood. Did that really happen? Did God really flood the entire world, leaving only a handful of family members to repopulate the planet? Sounds a bit Game of Thrones-ish, doesn't it? I mean, it's the same story for the most part as the Epic of Gilgamesh. And the Epic of Gilgamesh was written long before the Bible. So which one is right? And is one right? And, it, and does it matter if it's right? Or creation? Was it a literal six days and a day of rest? What, what about evolution? Can the creation story account for that? Is the Bible really supposed to be read like a scientific textbook, especially considering it was written well before modern science was discovered? So yeah, I've had my doubts. And those are just the tip of the iceberg. And at times the journey has been long and hard, walking through these questions and doubts full of ups and downs, left turns and right turns, even spinning around and around and around and around. I've journeyed through some of my doubts. And it seems like every time I journey through, new ones seem to appear. Some more heavy and challenging than others, How about you? Do you have doubts? Because it's okay to admit that you do. Because here's the thing. Doubts are a good thing. It's okay to question whether God is a present God in the wake of horrors like Katrina or Boulder or the policies at our southern border which have claimed 10,000 lives in the past 25 years. Or the astronomical famine, where more than 34 million people are on the verge of starvation in Nigeria, South Sudan, Somalia, and Yemen. Or the terrorist acts of racism in Atlanta, New York, Los Angeles, and here in Seattle, which target our Asian siblings. Where is God? Is he an absent God, a blind watchmaker, or is he a loving God? Because it's easy to wonder if he hears the cries of the disenfranchised and oppressed. And it's okay to wonder these things. It's okay to have these questions enter your mind, especially when the church remains so tone deaf. In fact, it's normal. Jesus' closest friends, his disciples, had these questions, all of them. The ones who walked with him day in and day out. The ones who knew him better than anyone else. The ones who experienced his miracles, like when he healed the man with leprosy or made a paralytic able to walk again or or healed the centurion's servant or, or the time he raised the widow's son from the dead and healed large crowds of people from all sorts of diseases. And afterwards, they all proclaimed emphatically, you are the son of God. After witnessing all of these miracles themselves, Jesus' disciples wondered time and again, who is this man? 
And they didn't even keep it to themselves. They talked about it openly with one another, even in front of Jesus. This is perhaps why I love the disciple Thomas so much. In John chapter 20, Jesus had just risen from the dead and it appeared to all of his disciples. Well, all of them except Thomas. Thomas was, (laughs) we don't really know exactly where Thomas was. My guess, he was on a wine run because let's face it, it'd been a rough few days. Jesus had died. The whole movement they had centered themselves upon had just evaporated. The direction that they thought their lives were heading, the hopes and the future that they had mapped out, stopped, vanished, and died alongside Jesus. It was a rough few days. But Thomas gets back, and the rest of the disciples are in a different world. Their eyes are wild with excitement, each fighting with one another. Who would be the one to deliver the news? Thomas, bro, you're never going to believe this, but but Jesus is alive. You remember what Mary told us the other day, that that he was alive, that she saw him? He was literally just here. You missed him. And Thomas was like, yeah, right, guys. (laughs) Ha, 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 very funny. Don't you dare try and stiff me. Everyone chips in for the wine. But they wouldn't let it go. They worked hard to convince him. Thomas, he was right here, we swear. And the conversation continued back and forth, and you can kind of hear the frustration and the anger and the hurt growing in Thomas's voice as he blurts out, I'm not going to believe you unless I put my hand into his side where they pierced him with a spear, and unless I touch his hands where the nails held him to the cross, I will not believe That's an emphatic statement. And this is where Thomas gets his nickname, Doubting Thomas. And here's the thing. For a long time, this title for Thomas has been used as some sort of badge of shame, a scarlet letter. And it's been used to ascribe shame to those who wrestle with doubts. You're such a doubting Thomas, showing shame your way. A weapon to push you towards faith, like faith and doubt are on opposite ends of the pendulum. But here's the thing about faith. Faith is not certainty. Hebrews 11 says it this way. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Faith is a built-up trust in someone. It's, it's, It's something that grows over time, not something that you just automatically attain. I like how Abraham Joshua Heschel puts it. Faith is not the clinging to a shrine but an endless pilgrimage of the heart. Faith is a journey. In fact, the theologian Paul Tillich once said, doubt isn't the opposite of faith. It's an element of faith. Faith and doubt coexist. They're on the same plane. For You cannot have faith without doubt. For one week, Thomas sat in his doubt. He wrestled with his doubt. He struggled just like we do. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Is that even possible? Or are my friends just being jerks, playing out this horrible joke at my expense? Now, we may think that a week really isn't a long time. Some of us have been wrestling with certain doubts for months, years even, and they're not letting up. You're not coming to any conclusions, any resolution, any certainty, just more and more deconstruction. But here's the thing I want you to hear. 
The Bible is full of imagery and reference points that point us back to really poignant stories. So usually when you see a timeline, it points back to something else in the Bible, something that occurred early on, an anchor point that helps give clarity to what the author is trying to describe about this particular moment. It's called the principle of first mention. You simply go back to where that thing was first mentioned. Hence the principle of first mention. <laughs> so when was the first mention or occurrence of a week or seven days in the Bible? Right. Genesis 1. And what happened in Genesis 1? Creation. This image of light bursting forth, of order being brought to chaos, of flowers blooming and trees growing, of birds singing, of life bursting forth. It's as if John is trying to say, Thomas had this doubt that was eating away at him, but, but in that doubt, God was creating something new in him. And in Jesus' resurrection, a new day was dawning for us all. You see, John wasn't telling this story to shame his friend Thomas for all of time. John wasn't giving Thomas this eternal black eye, this forever nickname of doubting Thomas. John was saying quite the opposite. God invites our doubts. God uses our doubts to create something new in us, something beautiful, something amazing, something that is good. I, I love this painting by the Italian painter Caravaggio entitled The Incredulity of St. Thomas. Because a week after Jesus appeared to everyone but Thomas, he showed up and appeared to Thomas as well. I love Thomas's face in this painting. It's the face of incredulity, the inability to believe what's right in front of him. It's a wrinkled and worn face, the face of someone who has been wrestling with heavy doubt. I, I, I mean, he looks kind of tired. His shirt is even torn, as if he were clutching and pulling on it from the stress of the doubt. But my favorite part is Jesus's hand. Notice how he's grabbed Thomas's hand and pulled it towards his pure side. And it's just holding it there. Jesus is saying, touch me. Thomas, come closer. Come into this. Investigate me. Search me. Know me. That's exactly what he says to us too. That in the midst of our doubts, in the midst of our questions, God, are you really there? Jen, come closer. Come into this. But God, do you really care? Robert, come closer. Come into this. Is this all made up? Christy, come closer. Come into this. Is life just a meaningless set of random circumstances? Talissa, come closer. Come into this. Jesus doesn't want us to run from our doubts. He doesn't want them to fester. He calls upon us to step into our doubts, to, in the words of C.S. Lewis, go further up and further into the mystery that is the Christ, to rest into doubt, to journey into our doubts, to find that he is right there holding our hand, calling us, come closer, come into this. We don't find certainty in this journey of doubt. We find faith, a greater trust in Jesus as we draw nearer, nearer 
to our precious Lord. I really love the wisdom of Abraham Joshua Heschel. He once wrote, awareness of God does not come by degrees from timidity to intellectual temerity. It is not a decision reached at the crossroads of doubt. It comes when drifting in the wilderness, having gone astray, we suddenly behold the immutable polar star. Out of endless anxiety, out of denial and despair, the soul bursts out in speechless crying. If you find yourself overwhelmed by the journey of doubt, if you find yourself stranded on the roadside, tired and exhausted, if you simply want to give up, if you feel like you're going through hell, keep going. But here's the thing. You don't have to do this alone. You're a part of an amazing community here called United. You're a part of a community of people who are journeying through this journey of doubt just like you. And if you find yourself overwhelmed by this journey of doubt, you're not alone. If you find yourself stranded on the roadside, tired and exhausted, you have a community to pick you up. If you simply want to give up, you have friends who can help carry you. If you're going through hell, keep going together. Caravaggio's painting, did you notice that Thomas wasn't alone? His community, his friends were right there by his side. I imagine Thomas wanted to get pretty far away from his community in the midst of these doubts. I imagine that he wanted to run, to hold himself up in a room all by himself and sit in his questions. But right here, his friends didn't leave him. And maybe more importantly, he didn't leave them. You see, this journey of doubt was never meant to be done by yourself. This journey of doubt was never meant to be kept to yourself. This journey of doubt is a team sport lived out in patience with one another as together we press into Jesus who continually calls, come closer, come into this. Wendell Berry writes this beautiful poem. It may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. And when we no longer know which way to go, we have begun our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. Come closer. Come into this and let us sing. That is the call for the one that gave it all for you and for me, that together we may experience this exquisite beauty of a love so amazing, so divine. It demands that we come closer. Not to have our doubts erased, but to journey deep into our doubts and know that it is what it is to be loved by a love supreme. Come closer. Come into this. And you'll never walk alone. Grace and peace be with you. Thank you for listening to this week's homily. If you're in Seattle, we'd love for you to join us at 1316 Third Avenue West in Queen Anne. If you'd like to support our efforts, please visit unitedchurch.gives to partner with us financially. Be in peace and God bless.